Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. The song of victory. That's what we sing. That's what we're going to sing. When we assemble on the mountain, we are going to sing the song of victory. Glory and honor and dominion unto the king. That is wonderful. Thank you, Bruce. So we're a week out from Easter, um, and this is a Sunday that's often referred to as Palm Sunday in light of the, the reading that we had this morning in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus is coming in riding on a donkey, and some people are laying palm branches out in front of the donkey for it to walk over. It's Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at the, at the Luke portion here to really try to get our, our mind um, wrapped around the image here, the scene. We're going to read the second half of Luke's version of this. It says, And they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now as he was going, they were spreading the cloaks on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stones stop speaking, the stone, if these people, if these people stop speaking, the stones will cry out. This image is is a little bit weird. I mean, it's a little bit strange. I mean, they're taking palm branches in one version laying out, but they're also taking their coats, their coats, and they're throwing their cloaks out for this colt that Jesus is on to trample all over. And so I think the vision, the, the, the thing we should be thinking about here is it's a makeshift red carpet, right? Like the red carpet's being rolled out because Jesus is in his final entrance into Jerusalem. And you should have something in your mind. It's a little bit like a sports arena or something where you have some people who are on one side, they're praising God and they're happy because this is happening. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're so excited and they're shouting praises. And then you got some other people going, boo. Right, because you got the Pharisees saying, "Hey, tell your people to shut up." Sorry, I shouldn't say it. Or kids in the room, tell your people to stop talking, to stop doing this. And Jesus says, "If they stop, the stones will cry out. They can't help themselves." I mean, it is the energy is wild in this place. And what we want to do this morning is we want to understand this scene. We want to know why the energy is amped up, why you got people booing on one side, but more importantly, why these people are so excited for what they are seeing. And we're going to start with a very simple question here, which is why is this thing called the triumphal entry? You know, why is Jesus on a cult walking into Jerusalem for the final time called the triumphal entry? And when we read in Matthew chapter 21 earlier, thank you, Amen, for that reading, we saw that there was this quote here. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Matthew 21 here, we're getting a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The reason why this is called the triumphal entry is because Jesus coming in in this moment on this cult is associated with these prophecies that talk about the coming of a king who's going to bring victory. He's going to be bringing victory for the Israelites. He's going to be bringing victory for, for God's people, excuse me, for his kingdom. And they shout in triumph. This is a triumphal moment as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And understanding that this is a triumphal moment, this is a moment that the God's people have been looking for, sets us up to think about two different perspectives for the scene of Jesus coming in on the cults. The first perspective we're going to be looking at is those who are praising Jesus. We're going to try to understand more fully, more deeply, why they're so excited in this moment. But the other thing we're going to be looking at is how what Jesus is doing here fits into His ministry and how it fits into His larger mission and that's what we're going to be spending the bulk of our time on this morning, is understanding these two perspectives for Jesus walking or riding on a donkey into Jerusalem for the final time. Now we've got to remember that those who are praising Jesus here, these are Israelites, these are Jews. These are people who have for a very long time been under foreign occupation. They have had kingdom after kingdom ruling over them. They have been strangers in their own land. I mean, they're near Jerusalem. This is the land that God promised the Israelites, but they don't get to own it. The Roman Empire owns it at this time. And before them, the Greeks. And before them, the Babylon, or the Persians, the Medes, so on and so forth. Right? They are strangers in their own land. They're of low estate. They're not, they're not all rich. They're not getting to walk around on all the... They're not get, getting to ride on all the nicest steeds. They're not getting all this stuff. And it's been this way for hundreds of years. Okay, so this is a, these people who are watching Jesus come in, they've got centuries of ancestry of people who have been living under foreign occupation, waiting for God's chosen one to come and to save them. They've been waiting for this. They are, they are in a desperate situation, yearning desperately for God to save them out from under the thumb of this Roman Empire. And we want to, I want to take just a moment here to really wrap our heads around how they've been waiting for God's chosen one and what they might have been thinking, what might have been going through their heads as they're waiting for God's chosen king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, to come in and to rescue them. And this is one of the things I've really loved about our Isaiah series that we've been going through, because if you've been following along and you've been, you've been paying attention, you've seen a lot of the things that they are looking forward to in this Messiah. You've, you have a better understanding of what these Jews were expecting. And we're going to look at one of those verses in Isaiah in just a minute. But we're going to first start in Psalms. And we're going to be looking at the expectation of God's people concerning this king that God was going to bring for them. And starting in verse 1, it says, Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, so just understand what's being described here. You have the nations, you have these kings, you have these rulers, and they're conspiring against the Lord. They are restless. They're plotting in vain. And what is God's response to these nations? What is God's response to these rulers who are conspiring together? If we go to verse 6, it says, But as for me, 
I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Okay, so this is, this is God's response to these rulers that are conspiring against God and against His anointed, against His people. He's saying, I'm going to install my kingdom. I'm going to install my king. And what's He going to do? He's going to break them with a rod of iron. Now you may recognize, you are my son, today I have fathered you. You may recognize it better, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is referring to Jesus. This is referring to the one that the Jews have been waiting for for centuries when Jesus is riding in on this cult. They've been waiting for this person who's going to come and he's going to break the nations that conspire against God and his people with a rod of iron. He's going to shatter them like earthenware. This is what they are longing for. They've been oppressed. They've been put down. And they want these people wiped out and gone. Another verse that sounds a little bit like this is Isaiah chapter 9. I believe Bruce had Isaiah chapter 9 in our, our Isaiah series. Here it says, You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. For every boots of the marching warrior in the roar battle, for every boots of the marching warrior in the roar battle and cloak rolled in blood will be burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no increase to, the, to his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Okay, so again, a very similar picture to Isaiah chapter 2. What do we have here? We have the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. That's going to be taken away in this moment. That's going to be removed. The rod of their oppressor, gone. It's removed. And when is this happening? When this child is being born to them. This child that's going to be the son. And what is this son going to do? He's going to sit on the throne of David. There will be no increase to his, there will be no end to the increase of his government. There will be no end to the increase of peace under his reign. Justice and righteousness is what his throne is going to be established on. He's going to do right by all people. He's going to make sure these oppressors are taken care of. Justice is coming. If you're a Jew, at the time of Jesus, watching this, watching him coming on the cult, you're thinking, this is the one. He's going to remove my oppressors. He's going to remove me out from under the thumb of these people that are so wicked and off. I mean, they, if you are a Jew at this time, you have got to be excited because 
you have watched him do miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, not only are you coming from a lineage of people who have been learning their whole life about how God is one day going to bring this person who's going to establish this kingdom and save them from their oppressors, but you have also seen Jesus do all these mighty deeds, going all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, as according to Isaiah, is our God reigns. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's come, and he's healing every disease and every sickness among the people. I mean, just imagine it. Some guy is coming saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here, and then he's healing people. I mean, that would be quite the sight to see. And they see it over and over again. They see paralyzed people able to walk again. Blind people can see. Demons are cast out. So many miraculous things are done as they are waiting for God's king to come. And they are, they're just thinking, this has got to be the one. And, he, and Jesus knows that they're thinking this. There's an instance in John 6 when he feeds the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. And near the end of that scene... Uh, the people saw the sign which he had performed, and they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, aware that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Because these people were seeing the mighty deeds that Jesus was doing, accompanied with his preaching of the kingdom, they knew this is the one. This is the one that's going to, he is the chosen one, the Messiah, the one that's going to save us. And so what do they do when they see Jesus on that donkey riding in? They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They cannot stop themselves from praising God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26. It says, Please, O Lord, do save us. Please, O Lord, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And I bring this, I br I bring this up because there's something really interesting also about what's being said in Mark chapter 11 by these people. As they are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes into the Lord. And it's this Hosanna. You know, we have a song that we sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a good singer, so I'm going to keep going. But we have this song. And a lot of times we sing it like as, as a word of praise, right? At least I do anyways, almost akin to hallelujah in my mind, right? But this word Hosanna is actually just a, a transliteration of a Hebrew word that is do save in Psalm 118 here. That word Hosanna comes from do save in Psalm 118. And so not only are they shouting praises to Jesus because he's the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, they're shouting, save us, rescue us, bring the kingdom and get us out of this mess. Please. They cannot contain themselves. They are convinced. This is the one which makes the events that transpire a few days later all the more strange. But more on that in a minute. Because we've got one more perspective we want to look at, and it's how what Jesus is doing as he's riding in on this, on this cult fits into his ministry and his larger mission. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when he's beginning his mission, when he's beginning his, his ministry, he goes about preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's basically his message from then on in, in a nutshell. Repent, turn back to God. The kingdom is here. His mission is to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and to bring the kingdom here and turn the hearts of people back to God. That's his mission. And what's being said here in Matthew chapter 4 is, by Jesus is not super surprising. Like if you, if you think about what we read in Psalm 2, you think about what we read in Isaiah and all the other messages we've heard from Isaiah for the past year or so, it's not surprising to think of a prophet, Jesus, coming in telling people to repent. It's not surprising that the Christ would be coming in and say, the kingdom is here. But there are some things about what Jesus did that are surprising. There are some things that if you were a Jew, you might think would be strange. Not what you were expecting of the one who's going to get you out from under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Because if he's this victorious warrior, can you try to get yourself in the mindset of, of if you've had the Psalms and the prophets read? He's this victorious warrior king. And he's going to get us out from under oppression. He's going to restore the kingdom under the throne. That's what he's going to do. That's my vision for him. If that's who he is, it's a little bit weird that he would say, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Let me explain why this is weird. Uh, in the Roman Empire, they had their, their soldiers, right? And they had all their gear, which is not going to be even close to as light as the gear of our soldiers or our police task force or whatever you want to think about today, right? It's pretty heavy. And so the Roman soldiers, they had the right by the Roman Empire to go up to anyone and say, you carry my gear for one mile. And so that's what's being talked about here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is telling them that if a Roman centurion, you know, these people that you think I'm going to save you from, if you think I'm the Messiah, if, if, if a Roman centurion comes up to you and says, you carry my gear for a mile, not only do you carry it for a mile, you do them a favor and you go another mile. What? What? I mean, that doesn't quite fit with the picture of you're going to save me from my oppressors. Or how about this, just a few verses later. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The people who persecute me? What? Oh, you mean pray like those imprecatory psalms, like gouge out their eyes and make their wounds bare. No, no, no. Pray for them out of love. Pray for your enemies. I mean, this would have been a little bit unexpected for a Jew who might think this is the Messiah for him to be saying these things. Like, you're supposed to break these people with a rod of iron. It's a little strange, a little unexpected. And there are many things that Jesus said and did that from the world's perspective would be unexpected and just foolish. Like, how about become like a child or a slave? If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be the lowest person on the totem pole. That's what you got to seek to be. Seek to serve other people. Don't seek to be the greatest. Seek to be the servant. Or how about when he said that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom? I mean, from the world's perspective, that's just straight up foolishness. Hard for rich people to be part of the kingdom? It's for the rich people, right? No. <laughs> He's saying things that are just strange. And if, and if you're thinking of him as Messiah is going to save God's people, it sure is strange that he's praising the faith of a centurion. It sure is strange that he's praising the faith of a Canaanite woman. Man, this is weird stuff. What is going on? 
I mean, one of the things, if you think about how they, they had this expectation of Jesus being the one who's going to bring them out from under these people, the fact that he says these things and do these things would have been just a little bit of like a head scratcher, right? Something unexpected. And certainly from the world's perspective, some of these things would have just been downright foolish. But God's ways are higher than our ways. And he does things better than we could ever imagine. He may have always done some unexpected things and done things that look foolish to the world, but it was for a purpose. A purpose that we can barely scratch the surface on. And Jesus riding in on the donkey is the same thing. That from the world's perspective, this will just look kind of foolish. Like what kind of victorious warrior king is this coming in on a donkey in a humble estate? Yes, this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, this is shouting victory in some strange way. Yes, this is shouting this is the king in some strange way. But from the world's perspective, it doesn't make sense that this is the, the victorious warrior king on a donkey instead of horses and chariots, right? No swords, no spears, no bows, no chariots, just riding on a donkey. And not even like, and on people's coats on it, you know? I really want to get this point across. So I have an illustration, if you'll allow me. If you think about modern day, if you are, say, in a, under a, um, under foreign rule, you know, some people are, 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 you're under foreign occupation. That's what I'm going for. You're under foreign occupation. And imagine that there's some sort of internal regime that's going to rise up and take these people out. Now, I'm not a war expert, like pretty far from it, okay? But I'm just going to tell you what I would expect to see. If this was going to happen, I would expect to see things like tanks. And I'd expect to see things like anti-aircraft weaponry and machine guns and bazookas. I mean, this is the sort of thing that I would think an internal regime is going to save people from under foreign occupation is going to bring. We're going to go at them. We're going to go at them hard with all the force that we can muster, with all the power that we have. And it would be really strange to me if instead of seeing this, I saw someone riding on an adult tricycle with a flag that says victory on it. That would be weird. That's not what I'm expecting. I'm expecting power and force and guns and ammo if you're going to wipe out the enemy. And it's this backwards, upside down sort of way that we see Jesus riding humbly on a child of a donkey, a colt. He's going humbly. And so here we have Jesus bringing the kingdom through humility like he always did. That would be unexpected to some and downright foolish to others. But it's the way of God. And it's his way and it's better. That he rides triumphantly towards Jerusalem, humbly riding on a colt, proclaiming victory as he does it. And so putting these two perspectives together, that you have those who were praising Jesus and you have Jesus' ministry. He's doing things. Uh, the, the people who are, who are praising Jesus, they expect Jesus to end the Roman rule over them. They're expecting a victorious warrior king. And they believe Jesus is the one that's going to establish God's kingdom. But Jesus' ministry is filled with teaching and doing things in unexpected ways. And bringing the kingdom through humility. We have these two important perspectives that we see in Jesus as he's riding on this cult. 
We see how this fits into his ministry. We see what they're expecting and what they're seeing, how some things are aligning, how some things are different. But I tell you, if you're a Jew at this time, and a few days later, when you look at Jesus and you see him hanging on a cross, you see defeat. When you see the mob crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, you don't see victory over the Roman Empire. You see another person dying at the hands of the Roman Empire. They don't see the victorious warrior. They just see another dead man hanging on the cross. But the good news is that Jesus once again was doing what he was prophesied to do, but in a surprising and better way. He was doing something way better than what they were looking for. They were looking for a victorious warrior. I'm telling you, they got it. They were looking for the king who is going to break the rod of their oppressor. I'm telling you, they got that in a far better way than they were expecting. And just going to lay down a little bit of groundwork here so that we can wrap our minds around how he did what they wanted, but better. Exceedingly better. But to understand that, we have to understand a little bit about what Jesus was trying to accomplish in being the victorious warrior king. And the thing about that, we're going to look at briefly here. Matthew chapter 4, 8 through 10. The devil is tempting Jesus. And in one of these temptations, the devil took him along on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. See, the Satan, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus is going to say, Oh, well, you don't actually have them, so you can't do them. No, no. He says, I'm going to worship God alone. Because Jesus understands that these kingdoms really are under the thumb of Satan, that he really does have control over them. In John chapter 12, 31 and 32, he says, Jesus is now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world would be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In the same breath as talking about his crucifixion, he's talking about the ruler of this world, the one who owns these kingdoms being cast out. And this is how Jesus is the victorious warrior king in the grave that far exceeds what they were expecting when they were looking to be brought out from under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Because Jesus defeated the ruler of this world. He defeated the one who owns the kingdoms. And in doing so, he defeated the kingdoms themselves. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2 when he says, when he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. In Christ's crucifixion, God defeated the rulers and authorities. Jesus was victorious. He did this in a surprising and better way. And it, it fits perfectly with the sort of thing that we see in Jesus' ministry all throughout. Because all throughout Jesus' ministry, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get to the heart of the problem, right? He knows the heart of the problem is your broken heart, the sin that's in it. You know, he doesn't want people to murder others, right? Don't murder. He knows that's not good. He doesn't want it to happen. 
But he doesn't stop at don't murder. He knows that we can't actually stop murder unless we nip the problem in the bud. We've got to go to your heart. We've got to get the hate out of that if we ever expect murder to actually stop. In that same sort of way where he's trying to nip the problem in the bud, he knows I can't just take out the Roman Empire. I've got to get to the king behind the pawn. And the pawn being these ruthless empires. I've got to get to the one who's behind the scenes. I've got to nip the problem in the bud. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. It was a surprising and better way of doing what they wanted. They wanted defeats of the Roman Empire. He did them one better. I'm going to defeat the one that makes the Roman Empire so bad. I am going to be raised up on a cross and defeat sin. I'm going to be raised up on a cross and I'm going to rescue you from the power of darkness so that you can be transferred to my kingdom. That's Jesus' victory. That's how he was the victorious warrior. And this gets me excited. I mean, I just, get, I just can't hardly contain myself. This is good. This is good. Jesus is our victorious warrior king. If he's on your side, what could be against you? If he defeated the worst of the worst, the baddest of the baddest, the worst of them all, how could you be afraid of anything? Jesus is on your side. The spirit that he sought is with you. The power of God is with you. That sort of power that he's the worst enemy in the world. If you have Jesus on your side, there's nothing that can stop you from doing right in this world by surviving in the realest way possible, thriving as God's children. That's the victory that Jesus offers. That's the victory that our conquering king gives us. And that's the hope that you can have. And so I want to close with this question. Is Jesus your conquering king? Is he your conquering king or is he just a really really great teacher? Is he your conquering king or is he just someone to really look up to? Is he conquering, is he your conquering king or are you warming the pews as you sit here this morning? Would you be willing, like the Jews, as they're watching Jesus walk right on the donkey in to take your one and only coat and lay it out in front of the donkey for it to trample all over? Would you be willing to do that? To take your one coat and lay it out for Jesus to trample all over with his donkey? Would you be willing to take your favorite thing, the thing that matters most to you, and say, Jesus, you can destroy it. I don't care. You're king. Is he your conquering king? Is he the one that you let to make the decisions in your life? Because if you're not willing to serve Him, if you're not willing to sacrifice everything for Him, He's not your conquering King. And that's a challenge, right? That's a challenge because we, we're like the Jews. We get fixated on the big bad stuff that we see. And we let these things distract us. When we need to turn our eyes to the conquering King, the one who beat the enemy of all enemies. If you're struggling with this, you've got to get this right. Because you want him on your side. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian at all. 
If you have not really chosen to give your life to Christ, to submit yourself to Him, to give your loyalty over to Him, He's not on your side. This guy who beat the enemies of enemies, you're His enemy. He's not on your side. You think you can mess with evil? You think you can beat the problem of evil in this world? You think you can beat the problems of this world? You can't do it. You can't. Nobody could but Jesus, and He did it. But if, he, if He's not your King, you're not going to conquer anything. You're going to be shackled by sin. You're going to destroy your life and the people you love. You need Him to be on your side and fight your battles for you and with you. That's what you need. And He offers that. He offers that kind of victory to every single person here and around the world. And if you need that, we want to help you. We want to help you attain that and put Jesus, the conquering king, on your side. If you'll come and have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.